We are in Champions League, man. That was my Dilly din, dilly dong, come on. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. This is the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast with Gary Kearney. Hi, welcome to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. My name is Gary Kernin. Joining me for this episode is Stu Singer. Stu is a sports psychology and performance coach. He's worked in the WNBA with the Washington Mystics. He's also worked at college teams, including University of Maryland and Fordham on the women's basketball side. And then we were connected. He's moved on to soccer as well. We were connected by Tiffany Weimer, who was who's a pro player, was on one of the podcasts previously. So Tiffany connect us. Stu is, was really, really keen about getting involved and, and coming on. So his, uh, his Twitter profile, which is Atwell Performance, describes him as a relentless pursuer of the performance mind. So I'm a, he's a doctor in psychology. I'm a massive, massive fan of sports psychology and, and what they're doing in that area. So the big areas that I wanted to talk about was the role in coaching today how we are using it to improve our players, uh, how we can improve our knowledge of it. And then the big key area for me is who are the biggest barriers to success and breaking through in teams? Is it the players or is it coaches? Are we holding everything up uh, with with the process as well? So I wanted to run a few things by Stu and he was brilliant. You can hear how enthusiastic he is with everything. So uh, you're going to enjoy it. Um, thank you for listening. Please, 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 any feedback, um, please help us spread the message. Uh, shoot a little tweet out and, um, and enjoy. Stu, thanks so much for joining me. I'm going to hit you with a first punch this morning. I'm um, ready to go. Sports psychology, right? Every yeah. coach, every soccer coach knows the value of it. Um, I know that by social media, like nobody disagrees with you on like psychology doesn't, everyone knows the value of psychology, <laughs> yes. but why are we so resistant to advice and practices and more education in the area? Why are, why are, why is it a, is it almost greeted with skepticism from soccer coaches? Well, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you two Two pieces. One is the absolute research and what the research says as to why we're, uh, from a coaching perspective, skeptical. Um, and then also just kind of from more of a, you know, a overview, a bigger picture. Um, so the way I frame it is first and foremost that there are four pillars of performance. There's the technical and the tactical and the physiological and then the psychological. And so the easy thing is to say, well, if I'm a coach, I'm, I better know the technical and the tactical. I mean, that, those are things that I, I have to know and my players in order to perform, they must be able to do. The third, the physiological, um, our conditioning, our fitness level, our strength, um, our hydration, our sleep, our nutrition, all those things uh, all go into the physiological. And the first three are visual. I can track those with my eyes. I can track, I can measure them, not just with my eyes, but I can measure those, those things. We can complete numbers of passes and we can track that. 
Um, we can see if our players are in position by watching video after we play or even at practice. Um, and then the, certainly our conditioning numbers are th things that we can track. Uh, and the last one, the psychological, is hard to track. There's, there's, it's hard to measure. We're getting better. Uh, we, you know, we, we, we can do some things at this point, but not certainly in the moment. It's a very hard thing to, to track and to measure. And so I think that is something that I see is that we're, we, we tend to want to pay attention to the things that are measurable. And so that's a big part of it. The research, and also I can tell you what I, what I feel when I'm, when I'm out and doing the work, su suggests three reasons. The first is, is time. Uh, coaches always feel a press for time. The more time I can get to prepare my team, the better. So it's hard to say, what, what do I take away in order to spend more time on, on let's say, the psychological? The second um, is training. Um, it does take a level of training. And, and you know, it doesn't have to be necessarily a, a formal training as in a, a master's degree or a doctoral degree. But it does take, um, you know, some, some time that the coach has spent really training themselves and understanding the ins and outs. And then finally um, is a comfort level. Um, we either are not comfortable ourselves in having difficult conversations with athletes, or um, we're not necessarily comfortable with another voice potentially. So having a sports psychologist come in and be this additional voice that the players are hearing. And so it takes a, um, a certain level of confidence in self uh, to, to say, yeah, I, I want to add this no different than I'm happy to add uh, a strength and conditioning coach, because as much as I know about the game, I'm not a, you know, I'm not an expert in, in, you know, the, the strength and conditioning component. So I don't mind doing that, but the, but the mind is sometimes this area where, wow, uh, I'm not real comfortable with this. Yeah. I've, I've been like nodding my head through that whole thing because <laughs> like I've, you know, in the college game, you're working alongside X amount of coaches every day in a department. So, you know, you kind of get a feel for, I'm always fascinated by what sport, you know, like what sport embraces psychology the best. And I'll, I'll come back to that in a, in, a, in a little bit. But the trust issue, like you mentioned it there, is, is a big, like I've, I've heard that a few times. So the coach, you know, a little bit, well, I don't know if I expose my players to this person, maybe they'll tell that person something that I don't want them to know. Um, like, what would that be? <laughs> that's a that's a great question. Um, I, you know, I can say that I've been doing this for you know a, a decade now, um, and I I don't really know a moment where I felt like I'm divulging something or teaching something that uh, that would go against uh, what coaches believe. What you know, I think that there is a little bit of a fear and a, and a residual stigma from coaches that somehow that if an athlete needs something mentally, it suggests that they're soft or weak. Um, and because of that, if I can just give this uh, veneer, uh, outer cover 
of just do, you know, Nike, just do it. Just don't, don't question, don't think, just do. That's all that you need to do. Um, and if you need to think again, just think tough. And, 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 you know, in, in certain circumstances, that's perfect. That's all somebody needs to hear is just, just push them, you know, just push them over the edge and, and cause they're so close, they're, they're right there at the edge anyways. And so all they need is a nudge, support, direction, demand, and that's good. And that's part of the toolbox, right. That a coach should have. But the, but the underlying is that, you know, these are human beings and they think, and, and actually as you, you know, we want intelligent players yet the most intelligent are thinkers. Um, so there's always thought going on and, and there's real science behind why thought is going on. So for me, I want to teach the science. I want them to know exactly why they do what they do, because when we know what we do and why we do it, that's when we can learn how to really manage it and use it for ourselves. But if we're just in the dark, how are we going to use it? And on that subject then, so you work with some really, really top academic institutions. Yes. And I would imagine dealing with a, a great level of intelligence in yes. those aids. So is there a correlation between academic success and openness to psychology or performance through the mind? Um, you know, that's from a research perspective, I can't answer to say absolutely what I can kind of tell you from just being in it is that I do think that's the case. I, I, I find that the players who are most interested in, in learning and, and finding out why and uh, wanting to continue to succeed, they, they almost it's a it's a um, thirst to master the material. And, and so they're going to try to do that potentially in whatever their major is, but they're also going to try to do that in their sport because that's their, you know, depending upon how it goes, sometimes that's their first major or, or at least, uh, uh, their double major. So, um, so there's a thirst for it. There's a knowledge for it. And if we kind of just leave that one area in the dark, we're, we're just opening it up for, um, any kind of information to fill that void rather than why don't we, why don't we just give them the, the real science of it? IQ and EQ. It's obvious that it makes a coach like it's, it does like you need both to be a coach these days. Absolutely. Do, Absolutely. You, do you need both to be a player or can the, you know, big, strong athlete over, overpower everyone and, and not have to think in, in soccer or any sport today? Well, you know, I, here's the way I look at it maybe a little bit differently, which is the reality is if you have a roster of, uh, you know, if you're dressing 18 or at the collegiate levels, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm sure you have a roster of 25 to 30 different years. It doesn't really matter what you want. You cannot roster that many athletes and not have thinkers in there. Mm. So you know, if you're putting 11 out to start the game and then, you know, subbing in at least three, four, five more over the course of the, of the match, it, your numbers will say that you're going to have thinkers, period. And so I look at it like, why don't we cast the biggest net? If you happen to have someone that just kind of, you know, is, is someone that just says, where do you need me? Um, and I go there that uh, and, and I do uh, and I'm strong and I'm fast. That's great. 
um, and it's a potentially, um, you know, it's a maybe a potential nice advantage, although I would bet that there are some things that we would find that would be held back because of that in terms of performance. But let's just say that for the sake of argument that that's the easy way. But then you're going to have these players who have absolutely all the skill that you want. Uh, they're great teammates. They give great effort. They care. They have the skill. But they think. And when they think, uh, really, our thoughts are very dictated by our emotions. Uh, and emotions are something that we are absolutely unable to prevent from having. They're, they're built into our, you know, we're hardwired for us. And so there's no way around them. And so if you're going to have half of a team or more that has, you know, that kind of comes to the table with that, why wouldn't we want to train and allow for those players to reach their best potential? I listened to a podcast you did with the basketball guys at Pure Sweat. Yes. Yep. Um, really enjoyed that. You were talking about... Great. Alan Stein. Alan Stein. Yep. Absolutely brilliant, brilliant man. Um, comfort moving out of, you know, building an environment, the importance of an environment, and then the importance yeah. of having support, emotional safety in that environment. Yes. I think the best way for coaches to help facilitate that would be to be vulnerable themselves and move out of comfort zones. Yes. Um, how, how do we do that? Yeah, I mean, it's really, it, 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 for me, it absolutely begins there. Um, I'm also a, a parent. And if I want my children to understand the concept of growth, where does growth happen? And the growth happens in those uncomfortable places, in those times that you move into a space that you're not necessarily familiar with that doesn't come easy to you but if you go into that space and you you know you are diligent and you stay with it you you'll probably become comfortable and if you never become fully comfortable what i can tell you is you'll be more comfortable than the time that you started and so that's where growth happens so as a parent you know i'm mindful of moments where i could say yeah you know what I want to stay safe here. I don't want to push that boundary. I mean, as long as it makes sense, of course. And, um, and, and yet I say to myself, no way I have to do that because if I want to try to tell my kids that they need to do that in order to become the best version of themselves, then my wife and I have to, uh, be the example of that. And I think coaches, it's the same thing. You know, if, if a coach, so going back to your original question of why do we sometimes avoid uh, sports psychology, which I will tell you in my time has grown leaps and bounds. The, the first years that I began, it was a much harder, um, in to get into programs and, and, and it's become much easier, but it, it, with that first question is why, and, and it's discomfort. And so if you say, you know what, uh, I'm, I feel like I'm a good coach, but I feel also that my, that I, I, every year should, should attempt to become a better coach. And one of those areas is the psychology of my athletes. And I don't feel comfortable with it. I don't like it. I don't act like asking questions. I don't like being told that maybe all that I've been doing for a number of years, um, not because I didn't care and not because I wasn't trying to do well, but because that's just what I was taught as an athlete was wrong. And I don't know if I want to hear that. That will make me uncomfortable. But 
but I'm going to do it anyways because it's the example. It's that vulnerability that you mentioned um, that shows your players, look, I'm willing to do this. I'm willing to stretch. I'm willing to ask questions. I'm willing to say that I don't know it all yet. Then players don't have a, um, a choice but to follow at that point. I think there's two two areas where just before we started talking, I was I, t- I said to you that about coaches thinking that everyone you know thinking that they're doing stuff but not actually doing stuff. And I think the two biggest areas that that is is comfort zone and everyone thinks they play a, a beautiful brand of soccer that is easy on the eye and aesthetically pleasing. And uh, both are for me are normally quite the opposite. So I feel all right. We've, we're having a situation in, in the U.S. With, a, with the youth level where resilience is not being taught, adversity they're not being exposed to. Is the same ap- applicable to coaches? Are coaches becoming to, because we're all full-time coaches, we've all got nice jobs, I'm sitting in a nice office, the sun's shining, uh, <laughs> I've got a coffee, whatever, Starbucks in front of me. Are coaches too comfortable in the U.S. rather than, you know, are we the problems too? You know, some of this obviously is, um, you know, a, a little bit of uh, obviously up to, to debate. I mean, I think if you go back to our, our men's national team, I, I do believe that, um, you know, Klinsman was trying to suggest that we, we as a soccer nation are too comfortable, that there's not enough external pressure, whether it be, you know, even on criticism of coaches, um, and, and, and then to, you know, so if you say, Hey, I know what I'm doing. Uh, don't question me. Don't ever question me as a coach. Um, then, yeah, I think that, you know, that can breed some complacency. Um, so I, you know, but in both ends, I would love for us to frame. So both ends, meaning the player or the, or the coaches that we frame this, this, um, if we're going to grow that we, we all have to like literally value placing ourselves in positions that are not, um, what we're used to and that we're okay with asking questions and being asked questions and that it's okay to say, I don't know. Yeah. Or I'm wrong. Where like, or I'm wrong. You know, and that's where yeah. I find that again, as coaches, we've, you know, we've in, in the U S we've, you know, if we lose the game, it's it's either the other team was direct. It's either that we were, you know, we, we were unlucky or it was the referee's fault. And then, you know, I, I'm I'm the biggest critic of the fact that we we aren't producing players that deal with adversity. But I also look at coaches and think, you know, I looked at Andres Villaboas quitting coaching for six months to go and join the rally at Dakar, and I think <laughs> like, all right, he, he's financially in a position to do it. But I just love this point where like. What are other coaches doing? So, like college coach, I've our season finished in the start of November, yeah, and and doesn't really the kids aren't back in until the end of January, and then you know we've got so much free time, yeah, we, we could be recruiting, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Is that not a space to grow? Is that not a space to get better? Um, how could we do like so? How could we utilize? Say, if we've three or four weeks, how could we utilize that space and grow and grow our knowledge of the psychological aspect of the game as well yeah i mean so you're taking <laughs> you're you are um unknowingly taking me into a direction that i'm uh, you know absolutely heading in myself which is i think that the um 
the greatest impact that myself or any, you know, anybody that, that does what I do can have is actually, while it's so powerful to work with individual athletes and, and the growth and the, and the freedom and, and some of the freeing of the obstacles that they place on themselves happen when you work individually with players. But I still believe that the greatest growth area for myself and for the field of coaching is actually if, if more psychologists and more coaches want to really learn the psychology and not just learn it, but then say, but how do I implement it on a daily basis? Because the knowledge is useless mm. if we're not doing something that we're implementing and we're not using um, strategies on a daily basis. And because it's not a, you know, unfortunately, what I see sometimes is we're going to try to do a, you know, preseason, we're going to have somebody come in and speak to the team. And, and then we can check that off the list. We, we did our sports psychology or our team building or chemistry uh, activity. And while that's uh, certainly admirable to, to begin somewhere, we, we actually know that there's not a lot of behavioral change that's going to come from a one-time anything. And so it's really that next step, that next level of saying, well, we, we work conditioning uh, and fitness into every practice. Why would we not truly work the mental conditioning into every practice if we know that it's a place that we can gain a performance advantage? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And then, and then it goes back to your first point, doesn't it? About the comfort and, and all that good stuff. Which, which sport totally. is, which sport is leading the way? Like who's, who's growing the fastest in terms of the, the mental performance? Well, I feel that, you know, and I'm, I'm I am going to speak probably very much for, for the States, but I feel like golf and tennis were the ones that were way ahead of the game in terms of they started first. Mm -hmm. um, but I, you know, I, I, baseball is really in the, in the U S if you look at how many teams have a director of mental performance in, in major league baseball, you'll see a, a, a pretty good number. Um, but, I, but I truly believe that all of our professional sports within probably the next, I hate saying a decade, cause that seems so long, maybe even in five years, you'll see, fewer and fewer that don't recognize that they should have someone that's also helping to train the mind. Where do mental health or do mental health and sports performance ever collide? Yes, they do collide. I will say that I'm very clear with any team or institution or organization that I come into that my work is not clinical work. It is performance-based um, psychology. So I, it is very much, um, on how the mind works under stress and pressure. Um, saying that without a doubt, there are times where we're carrying too much personally. Um, and that manifests into, you know, clinical levels of anxiety, clinical levels of depression. And when we're in those places, it's going to impact performance. And so, you know, as a as myself, what I, you know, what I do is make sure that we, you know, have a, a, a referral place that 
that we can use if that's what's going to happen, if they're going to move to a clinical aspect. But, but I will say this, that there are times where the, what I'm doing um, will actually free the athletes from a higher level of anxiety that, you know, or, or other feelings that they may have so that they actually learn how to regulate these things on their own without, you know, um, going to a clinical level. All right, I've got a few questions now for you. We'll just kind of move to towards putting things into practice. So that was, you know, a little bit about philosophies and and ideas. Now it's say, all right, I'm a coach at U14 club, high school, or something like that, and say, right, what what's your advice on certain aspects? Does that sound good? Yeah, I love all it. Right. All right, so the. I, I was talking to a coach yesterday on Twitter who was trying it, and it, it made me think about the, the balance between, all right, you want to win. All the kids say they want to win, which is not the normal there, but also part of their goal setting was fun. Is fun and winning, do they go together? Uh, I, I believe absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and... You know, and but I also believe that that is one that we we sometimes uh, that's I mean it it is a it is a balance. I you know I've I've heard many coaches say they want to have fun, but winning is fun, and so at all cost we 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 put the player under whatever in order to win, thinking that the payoff is the win, and. And so from a psychological perspective, here's the issue with that, which is that winning is an outcome and we do not control outcomes. We influence them, but we don't control them. So if the only thing that matters is winning and yet we don't have complete control over that, then we are forcing ourselves into a place of anxiousness because either consciously or at the minimum subconsciously we recognize that regardless of what we do we don't control this outcome and so the concept of having fun is you know you know you you can make things fun uh if you you know if you really want your team to get better at possession play why not make a make that the goal, make it a game. Kids love to play the game, count it, count points. Uh, and, and you make it something that's competitive. Uh, they can compete. They love to play. They love to keep score. And yet at the same time, we're hopefully moving towards a skill that's going to help us to win. It's going to influence winning. What about game days? Is there a, is there a danger in game days of giving players too much information? So it's that balance, isn't it? Like they'll need an emotional, uh, an emotional surge to go out and play. You know, win one for the gipper, the team talk, and then they'll need information. <laughs> how, how does a how does a youth coach find the balance between you know emotion and information? So <laughs> this is and and it can go higher than youth coaches it, i'm sure you see it uh, at your level and you could go probably even to the professional level is that there is a a saturation point with information 
And, and so we as coaches, one of the biggest things, getting back to that concept of winning and what we control and what we don't control, one of the things that we want to control is our preparation. And so the coaches feel an anxiousness to cover everything. That way I can say, I prepared us. We were prepared. I covered everything. Players, before they go on to the field, can only hear so much before they're saturated. So I'm a big believer in if you have one, two, maximum three points that are musts for this particular game or ones that you just want them to take onto the field every match, that those are the ones that we discuss prior and we try to get uh, you know tuned in to. But beyond that, it, it's really just a lot of words um, that are not being... Um, they're not, they're not going to be able to listen and, and, and take it all in at that point, especially with that level of, of butterflies that are going on and the ability to process information goes down a little bit when we're in that fight or flight space. What about, you know, environments again, kind of going back to that there, we talk about, you know, high, high levels of communication are obviously, you know, very, very strong characteristics of a of an elite environment from coaching staff to players is it is it ever a good option or is it ever the correct option for a coach to say you know we talk about holding people accountable sometimes you're better as a coach youth level college level or is there ever a better option to say all right listen today i'm just gonna i'm just gonna keep my mouth shut and not hold someone accountable or have a form of confrontation yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think there is moments where um, that highlighting bad behavior um, or bad performance can sometimes, you know, sometimes allowing it just to play itself out, we find that it was a one and done. And by if we highlight it, it becomes it becomes greater. It becomes bigger than what it was. So I do think that there are times um, to to just be able to say, hey, this is a battle that I don't think is worth getting into at the moment. Um, but I do believe that accountability, um, first of all, starting with our own accountability, again, as coaches, uh, if we're going to hold players accountable, we better be holding ourselves accountable first. Um, and then second, um, you know, our leadership within the team again, they should be holding themselves accountable before they start holding their teammates accountable. But I do believe that accountability, um, when it's at its best, which is that we're in this together, that we're in agreement that these are our core principles, our core values, that we, you know, that this is what we're about and that we believe that outcomes will take care of themselves if we take care of these core values. Um, I, then I absolutely believe uh, that accountability is a really, really important part of best team cultures. What about the top players? Because I'm a big believer that even from my own point of view, when I, when I kind of self-analyze and I look at teams, I always, I always ask, have I, have I challenged the top players enough? And I always think it's a difficult skill to be like, we're almost drawn to the middle of the group or, yeah. the, bar or the bottom of the group. What are ways that coaches can, you know, without giving that player uh, a, a, a book 
and saying, go and read that and it'll help you. What ways can we, can we help challenge the top players in our teams? Well, I mean, I, I, there's probably a, a variety of ways that you could frame challenge them. So, you know, challenge them from a leadership standpoint, um, from a, you know, uh, their own emotional regulation. Like if you stay solid, then the rest must follow. And then obviously there's the challenge of their own skill set. Like how do I challenge this player who is already the best player on our team and no one can really challenge, you know, it's, it's hard for anybody else on the team to challenge them. So how do, how do I do that? But, you know, I, I, one thing that I think is very clear is that when your best player is also one of your most bought in to the program. And I'm thinking of uh, like a Tom Brady with the Patriots or, uh, you know, when Tim Duncan was with the San Antonio Spurs, the, these players were the best of the on the team, but they were also the most bought in. They were very connected to the head coach and, and their system and philosophy and beliefs. And so for me, what I might recommend in that situation is that the coach work heavily, heavily, heavily on the relationship with that player. So in order to challenge them, build the relationship first and understand what that player is looking to accomplish, what they want, what they want to achieve. Why does it matter to them? And now you're, you're working with them, um, not as peers per se, but in a, in a symbiotic type of way where we're, we're doing this together, not I'm pulling you and you're pushing me and you're pushing against me and I'm trying to do it, but maybe I don't want to type of way, but more of a, I know what you want to achieve. Uh, and I, I think I can help you get to that place. And, but it comes with a place of relationship and understanding first. Do you think it's ever okay to, to say to a, say if a top player has a personality characteristic that they're quiet, shy, withdrawn, etc. Do you think it's, you know, as a coach, do you accept that? Or is it, you know, when we're pushing people and challenging people is, do we now have to have leaders who are vocal, highly communicative, or is it ever okay just to say to the, you know, all right, you're quiet, you're going to lead by example, or is it our role as a coach, I suppose what I'm asking, do we have a duty to always challenge personalities as well as players? Um, so here would be my thought on that. Uh, teams that I work on, and I'm sure many, many other teams do personality type, um, you know, um, testing. Uh, and there's a, a bunch of them that are that are either extremely extensive or some that are pretty simple and they break it down into some are the type of animal or type of just color by color. And you are if you're this color, uh, then this is the personality type that you are. And we do it so that we learn to understand that their people are, are motivated and driven by all sorts of different things. And it doesn't make one better or worse than the other. And so, it, absolutely, I have been on many teams, been working on the staff of many teams where the best player, the, the captains, the, are actually exactly what you're saying. And so the way I look at it is to say, you know, you understand who they are and who they are is not a bad thing. That's just who they are, period. You can't take personality out of someone that, that is who they are. But we can say, 
in order for us to be the most effective um, performance self um, that we that that communicating and and speaking and talking up and and sometimes holding others accountable is a skill and so if you want to become the best that you can be that you're going to try to work on this which doesn't mean that they're ever going to become great at it but I do think that we should ask them to grow not not to become you know no one is perfect at every phase of everything that it means to be a great player or athlete um but but can they grow can they step again into a little bit of discomfort um i do believe that that's something that that we as coaches should be holding them to um i hope that answers that question yeah it absolutely does what, what do you think you know, the, the biggest, not mistake, but what do you think most programs, you know, in your experiences with so many teams, so many players, you walk into an environment, what's the first thing you fix because it's usually broken? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, well, I mean, I think that there are two things that you can, you, you see most, that, that are the places of greatest areas of potential growth. Um, the first for me in what I do is always that that really very few people really understand the science of why we do what we do mentally. So it's an, it to me, it becomes a relatively easy place for us to to grow a lot is to teach that part of it. Why do we do what we do? Why? Why, when things aren't going our way, do we start to potentially tell these negative stories to ourselves why does that happen and there's a reason behind it it's not it's not because we're weak it's it's because of the design of the brain and so that to me is one of them and the other one is is really defining and creating culture we've only uh, started this conversation so i definitely want to I want to dig a little bit deeper for sure. <laughs> yeah, it's the good and the bad. It can splinter in a million different directions and I'm, I'm happy to continue it. Awesome. Thank you, Stu. Really appreciate it. All right. Great speaking with you, Gary. Uh, you too. Take care. Thanks so much to Stu for his time and insight there. I really enjoyed that. I always love talking to sports psychology people because I feel that they've taken over almost back in the, the old days, the trainer or the physio was the connection between the coach and the players where they were talking to them and they knew who was struggling with certain things and who were things going on in their lives. And I think the dynamics have changed in sport today where the trainer has become a little bit more scientific and the, now the, the role of a psychologist can now be an extra level of support for the players. And I find players are much, much more open to talking to those types of people about the issues and the trust that that they're struggling with. Whenever we brought in, and, and I've brought in psychology people to talk to players or even with Donna Fisher to work with teams, um, it's, 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 it's improved them tenfold because of, yeah, that, that vulnerability piece that the players are willing to, to go above and beyond um, in terms of telling people what they're, what they're feeling, telling people what they're doing um, away from the game, which obviously plays a big, big role. So the big takeaway for me with Stu was, and I think you could see what I was, Gary, you could hear what I was getting at with those questions was, was basically how intentional are we 
as coaches to go above and beyond um, sending messages. You know, we all preach comfort zones and we all preach about getting out and, and doing things and being active and, and getting new ideas and in new ways of doing things. But are we really, really doing that if we're just picking up a book uh, and then telling our players to go read a book? Because I don't think, I think players today, and I think that's the next stage of where it's going to break down. I think, you know, I think a, a t- 10 years ago, a player and coach relationship would have broke down where a coach would have said, would have yelled at them or screamed at them and player might have thought that was a little bit too aggressive. But I think coaching communication has improved today. But I think the next stage of it is going to be where the coach and player relationship will break down because of a player going you know what, I love this stuff about growth mindset that you're preaching to me, but you don't actually live that, what you say. And I think that's going to be a harsh reality for for the coaching community if we do take a good, long, hard look at ourselves and we realise that we're not preaching what we're saying. Um, if, we, if, we're not, if we're not exposing ourselves to new challenges at the same level that we want our players to expose themselves. So that's something that I'm trying to do a little bit of self-analysis with on at the minute is to say right you know are you learning a new language what are you reading are you just reading stuff that's convenient to you um what level of work are you operating at it's things like that there so hopefully we, we can push that on and, and get to it a little bit further on in, in the podcast again but thanks so much for listening uh always appreciate the the tweets out and the support about the podcast so um if you could please keep that coming uh, we've got some great guests coming up. Again, the psychology side is big to me. So we've got a, a, a few good people in the future. And um, thanks again for listening. Thanks to Stu. And I'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. For more coaching topics, sessions, and resources, head on over to Coach Kernine on Facebook or visit the website at www.modernsoccercoach.com.